This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Warden School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm here today on Zoom with my dear colleague and co-host, Mike Husey. Mike, how are you today? I'm doing great, Ann, and probably you too, I hope. How are you doing? Yes, I am. I am. It's okay. a absolutely uh, frigid Um, but very beautiful day. So I'm happy to be here with you. And I want to remind listeners that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. All right, Mike, as usual, we usually have a little warm-up question before we uh, invite our guests today. So I've got a question for you. A couple weeks ago, we interviewed Judy Samuelson. I know you'll remember that interview. And we talked about her new book called Six New Rules. And that got us talking about the relationship between business and politics. So I'm just going to start with that theme and ask you for your thoughts on that topic. What do you think, Mike? Uh, well, I think about that a lot, as everybody does, especially since I think we're around the 50th anniversary, plus a few uh, months or years from Milton Friedman's famous article that appeared in the New York Times magazine, suggesting that the purpose of business is to make business and nothing else. And the Business Roundtable uh, Association of about 200 CEOs uh, about 14 months ago, 15 months ago now, put out a counter declaration saying that indeed business should be in business, but it also has responsibility to the environment, to the public, to suppliers, customers, and well beyond. And so I'm with Judy, Judith Samuelson all the way. Uh, and I'm not in the Milton Friedman camp. I, I think we have actually taken a very good turn in the U.S. towards seeing business become more directly involved Uh, politics, aside from this, more directly involved in social affairs. So a big thumbs up. Anne, what do you think? That's great. Well, Mike, I I really appreciate your response to that. And I'm right with you. And I guess what I would ask is a follow-up question. I'm just going to pose this rhetorically. Do words matter? You know, does a statement matter? And how about with that, just opening food for thought, I'm really delighted to welcome to the show, Daniela Ballou Ayers. Daniela, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, let me just let everyone know a little bit about you. You are the founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project. And before that, you began your career at Bain & Company and you worked across the firm's offices in the US, South Africa, and the UK. You became a founding partner at Dalberg, where you led the America, America's business and transformed the startup into the largest social impact strategy firm with 25 offices worldwide. 
You've also spent five years in the Obama administration, and you've had the pleasure of working with Secretaries Clinton and Kerry. So it seems to me that you do have a lot to say about the intersection of business <laughs> and government. So let me just start with that opening question. Do statements and words matter, Daniela? That's a great question. I think the short answer uh, is yes, but, <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll go into a little bit more into what I mean there, is uh, setting an intention in the way that the business roundtable did, I do think has value. Um, and I, in some ways I learned that being in politics, that setting a framework and putting a set of ideas forward for the direction that you want to go is really important if you want a diverse community of actors to come along with you. However, uh, that does need to translate into tangible action in a reasonable period of time for it to be meaningful. And I do fear that the uh, translation of intent from company statements into actions that are clear representations of that intent are currently uh, not as far as they need to be. So there's potential, the potential is being created, but uh, there's a lot of work to do to translate those intentions into action. I very much appreciate your comment and response. And I love the word reasonable. And I'm sure reasonable frame of, or amount of time may, may vary perhaps on the size of the organization, the size of the effort. Could you comment a little bit on that? What's reasonable? Uh, that's a great question. I think in, in a world where things are moving quickly and business moves quickly, certainly quicker than government, I think the timeframes have to be in months or, or in a few years, uh, not in much longer timeframes. You know, when I was in government, I worked on negotiating the sustainable development goals, which was an international agreement uh, that was reached in 2015 around 192 countries around the world, agreeing to a set of goals by 2030. Uh, and that was governments. That was a long time frame. <laughs> right, right. And they were ambitious goals, right, to address climate change, to uh, bridge economic divides, et cetera. Certainly concerns about would governments live up to them. But for a government commitment, 2030 was appropriate to drive those long-term changes. I think for companies, you know, companies manage quarter to quarter. Yeah. Uh, they, they should manage longer than that, <laughs> but right. quarter to quarter. So I think you do have to see real action uh, and indicators of action within a year, frankly, to know that it's going to, to sustain. Very good. Now, I want to get Mike into the conversation here, but let me just start with the big header, the Leadership Now Project. Tell us a little bit about that, and then I'll put, bring it over to Mike. Sure. Leadership Now Project is a membership organization of business and thought leaders committed to renewing American democracy. We were started, uh, we started in 2017, uh, recognizing that uh, the degree of polarization and distrust in our country was a real risk to the fundamentals of our political system. And we wanted to develop a group that was more deliberate about engaging in politics than what's typically on offer, which is to support a particular candidate or um, uh, read 
articles on social media, social media that you vigorously agree with or disagree with, but don't do much with. <laughs> uh, so we've really built uh, since 2017 uh, an organization that now has a national membership and has taken deliberate action to support both support efforts that are aimed at reforming the system, like objective redistricting, addressing gerrymandering, voter participation, but also to really mobilize uh, our members and networks to stand up for democracy at critical moments, most recently around the January 6th insurrection. Very good. Mike, how about you follow up? Yeah, Daniel, I'm going to jump right in with an observation. Uh, given what you have just said, I think you've had a very busy year. <laughs> yes. Oh. Busy few months, busy few years. <laughs> <laughs> a lot to work with. Let me come back to that in just a minute and go back to the query Anne began with. And we do know that words matter, but some people seem to express their thoughts in words better than others. And partly for that reason, as part of our own leadership development enterprise here at uh, Penn, we do focus on leadership presence. Um, speech giving, uh, communication skills. So maybe drawing from your time in the U.S. State Department without necessarily naming names, what have you found when the secretaries communicate or the assistant secretaries communicate, what is it about the way they use words that are most consequential for the way those words stick or are rebroadcast on the evening news and well beyond? So anyway... When do words, how do we make our words matter? That's a great question. You know, it, it, it certainly is a mix of art and science uh, to yeah. provide truly impactful statements. One thing that I found very interesting in diplomacy was how careful we were about the words that we were choosing uh, for leaders and how much signaling was embedded <laughs> in different statements to different groups that were listening. Um, you were trying to make sure that uh, the, those listening knew you cared about a particular issue, whether it was climate change or human rights or otherwise. And uh, that made me much thoughtful about how do we bring different audiences in and reach address kind of what's top of mind for them. However, I think one thing I was struck by in all of that is in an effort to reach particular audiences with particular issues, sometimes you lost the broad audience. And so the process of creating a speech, for instance, in diplomacy is involves many people checking every word <laughs> to be careful about what you're saying and to deliver the right messages. And sometimes that actually yielded a worse outcome in terms of something that was inspiring uh, to the broader audience. So I think there's that balance between authenticity and knowing who you yep. are and how you communicate. And, you know, we see this in politics, right? That once you get too, too scripted, <laughs> right. you can lose the ability to really connect with people. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that fully answers the question. It's something right. I, I continue to work on. 
but one thing I'm struck with right now with our very fragmented media environment and where trust is so fragmented, it's extremely hard to find people that can transcend all the audiences. Yep. Um, and so I've been really interested as we built leadership now, how are we cultivating the voices, for instance, that re reach the business community? on these issues with academics, with our own members who are in business, uh, in a way that, frankly, political leaders really struggle to transcend into yep. um, our, our networks in many ways. Well, just to pick up on that and, and take it very briefly in a kind of an obvious direction, in the old days, let's say 15 years ago, if you were a secretary of state and you're speaking to diplomats and let's make it Istanbul, Turkey, there's some likelihood what you say in a closed room is going to stay in that closed room. There's no such thing as a closed room anymore. So when you speak, you're going to be tweeted, you're going to be photographed, you're going to be, it's going to be reproduced. Thus, do you think for people who are leading their own foundation or community group or a hospital or even a company, that there is an increasing premium on speaking authentically, but also simultaneously to many audiences that are kind of just built into the setting where you can't be by yourself and them alone. What do you think? I mean, that sounds right. <laughs> it, it sounds yeah. like the challenge, you know, although I think ultimately you can't be too afraid when yeah. you communicate about, um, you know, about saying things that might offend one or the other. I, it, it's such a, right. a balancing act, but at some point then you, you lose the ability to push push the envelope and, and challenge convention. So it's yeah, a great point. There's a fine art and we've got to <laughs> learn it. Anne, back to you. Very good, Mike. I'm just going to remind everyone that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio Sirius XM channel 132. I'm with Mike Yuseem. I'm Ann Greenhall, and today our guest is Daniela Ballou Ayers, founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project. Mike, I like the direction you took the conversation because I'd asked about, you know, do words matter, mm. and uh, is it important to issue a public statement? And you took the conversation in the direction of oral communication, spoken communication. And Danielle, I really appreciate your response because on the one hand, you know, you need to be a little bit sophisticated, know your wide, wide range of audiences. On the other hand, you've got to be really clear because the message can get lost. You can be too, too subtle. So I'm, I'm just wondering, I know that you have five principles in the leadership now project, and we've touched on the first, and that is the importance of issuing a public statement. The second is withholding financial support. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, Anne. So yeah, as I, as I mentioned earlier, when we, in response to the insurrection, we developed and quickly released five actions that companies could take, which would demonstrate their real commitment to upholding American democracy and providing a meaningful response. The first action you mentioned, Dan, was to issue a public statement supporting our democratic institutions. We saw some major players in the industry association space in Washington do that very quickly. For instance, the National Association of Manufacturers issued a statement on the same day within hours saying, uh, we need to stand up for 
democracy and even suggesting that it was appropriate to invoke the 25th Amendment. The second action that we recommended was for companies to review their support for elected officials who had backed the insurrection and to withhold financial support from them. Those were eight senators and 139 <clears throat> members of Congress. We have seen, uh, we saw within days and now in the weeks since, a very large number of companies who have taken that action, either by specifically pulling back from uh, their contributions from those members of Congress or overall pulling back, uh, taking a pause on their contributions. The, uh, I quickly can note the others. Uh, third was ensure that those who supported the insurrection uh, do not have opportunity for future employment uh, with, uh, with your company. Uh, that's another thing that companies can consider. We have seen in the past, and, and this even goes back to the Nixon era, that uh, uh, the kind of cashing in on that experience, um, unfortunately, is, a, is a, uh, it's not a good incentive uh, for those who are working to undermine democracy. Other things we uh, put on the list that companies can consider are pulling advertising dollars from media channels that are spreading disinformation. Uh, and finally, for companies to do um, their part in countering disinformation and conspiracy theories that undermine democracy. Mm. Okay, all, all critically important. I'm going to go back to number two for just a moment. Withholding financial support, and I realize this is a little bit of a leap, but I'd be curious about your thoughts on this. The whole topic makes me think of campaign financing, and I'm just wondering about your thoughts on that. Absolutely. You know, I think this is an area um, that speaks to What's been a, a disconnect in some ways between companies' stated intentions on social issues and how they've participated in the political system? Uh, and this is not always deliberate, but it's been the effect of uh, essentially many large companies, public companies, are given a fairly routine way to political candidates in Washington. So that means if a uh, if a member of Congress sits on a relevant committee, if they've supported legislation relevant to your company, then they get a check from your company. It's it's fairly simplistic, to be honest. Um, the challenge has been, particularly in in the past several years, that there has been a non-trivial number of, I think, members of Congress who have pursued agendas that were fairly inconsistent with companies' stated goals, whether those goals were addressed to address climate change or address racial equity or improve democracy. Those checks might have been written to someone who was not consistent with those principles that the company had committed to. And that review wasn't necessarily part of their standard process of thinking about what, what members of Congress to support. So I think in the moment of the insurrection where companies really started to step back and say, wait a second, we, we were supporting members of Congress so that we could engage with them on particular policy issues. We can have a separate discussion of whether that's a good thing or bad thing, but that's <laughs> that's how the process worked. Uh, they didn't fund those members of Congress to undermine democracy and to support an insurrection. And so I think 
that really hit home at that moment for many companies. And I does I do think will lead to greater scrutiny and board oversight of political contributions and asking those those harder questions. Good. Mike, how about a follow-up from you? Yeah, Daniela, uh, Daniela, thinking about the wheels that turn and your effort to increase the spin of those wheels, to what extent have you seen in companies you've worked with the direct involvement of the directors or the board of trustees? So I know you're appealing, no doubt, to the chief executives and and the C-suite, but have you found um, friendly faces in the boardroom that have helped your cause uh, with particular companies? Well, you know what's interesting is our membership is uh, executives, a range of executives, from younger yeah. uh, executives to those who have retired. But many are current, currently at the executive level, but not ne- not necessarily the CEO of their company. And something that we found is that as our membership has come to understand the system more, understand what the issues are, that many are influencing from multiple levels in their organization, uh, whether they're an executive, whether they're uh, an employee, or they're a board member of the firm. So I think that education process has been critical. And we've seen with our academic partners that that's happened as well. One of our academic advisors is Michael Porter out of Harvard Business School. And just this week, he and an organization uh, called Center for Political Accountability that we've worked with that does a lot of the data on where corporate spend is going in the political system. They just did an op-ed in the Boston Globe that said, recommended boards and company leaders having more oversight over their political spend and following a set of guidelines on how to review that spend uh, and and do things differently. So we're really seeing that ripple effect of a whole community within our membership and beyond who are seeking to shift the norms. And then to turn this upside down, Anne and I did speak with uh, Judy Samuelson a couple weeks ago. She's got a new book, and you probably have worked with her over the years, that is focused on how business school curriculum could be, among other topics she talks about, could be evolved to bring these issues into the business school curriculum. And I know you've been on the receiving side of that. So if the dean of the Harvard Business School or the dean of the Wharton School, your school, HBS, our school right here, says, um, what does this mean for what we teach in the classroom? What's your response? I'm so glad you asked because (laughs) I think there is a huge opportunity for updating curriculum at Harvard, at Wharton, at a whole range of business schools uh, across the country in a couple of ways. One, I think this broader question of stakeholder capitalism, the evolution from the kind of Milton Friedman model to something different. I've already, I'm already seeing that in business school curriculum quite a bit more than when I was in business school um, more than 20 years ago. But um, so that, that certainly needs to happen. And one thing I think is real, a real opportunity there is moving to solutions, right? What's the action after the words <laughs> and moving to the stakeholder capitalism model? And then the second thing that I think is a really significant opportunity is building an understanding of the political system, of how policy is made and how business interacts in that system and what a healthy interaction can look like and one, what is it, 
interaction look like that's having a net negative impact on the system for each of the actors. Um, I'll just say one last thing on that. I'm always struck that until I moved to Washington, I was a newcomer when I joined the Obama administration. I'd been in New York before then. The DC landscape was new to me in a variety of ways. And I realized I could count on one hand the number of people I had met who worked in government affairs at a company hmm. before I moved to Washington. And many who go to business school, they don't understand that piece of the picture. Mm -hmm. But in our political system, that is the manifestation of business participation and influence in a very significant way. So understanding that, modernizing it, uh, I think could be a real topic for business school education. Great point. And back to you. Yeah. And Daniela, maybe just to pick up on that, you have the benefit not only of an MBA from Harvard, but also a degree from the Kennedy School. Am I right about that? That's right. Yeah, so you've had, from an educational point of view, you've had the opportunity to weave government, public policy, and business in your thinking. And, you know, and don't get me started on education, but one, I'll put it in the positive, one of the great opportunities at all levels, undergraduate and graduate, is to have a greater synthesis, a greater integration, so that the right hand knows what the left is doing. And unless we have that integration, we're less poised as graduates to be able to see the intersection of business and, and policy and government. So I'm, you're nodding. So you agree, Daniela. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly. And um, in some ways, in building this organization and our membership of Leadership Now, we really deliberately aim to mix business executives, policy leaders, academics, to tackle these, understand these issues together and generate solutions. Because I was so struck that those bubbles between policy in Washington and the business world uh, had far too little connection to solve the really challenging problems we have ahead as a nation. I'm going to turn to Mike and ask you, Mike, to set us in the direction for the second half of the show. Daniela, as you have worked with Congress, uh, I appreciate that you're, you're very focused on the private sector and how companies can step forward and what executives can do. But their effort depends a lot on what happens on both sides um, of Capitol Hill there. And in your experience, looking maybe back over the last year into the year ahead, uh, are there a lot of allies in what you're doing within the House and within the U.S. Senate? Or is this going to be an uphill campaign for the next year or two? What do you think? You know, we've worked off over the last several years <clears throat> to identify in Congress champions for rebuilding our democracy. And we have found some really extraordinary new leaders in Congress. We, we actually created a list of members of Congress that we called New Leaders to Watch. And we evaluated them in, starting in the 2018 election. We looked at newcomers to Congress who came from fields including the sciences, business, nonprofit leadership, who had demonstrated leadership, hmm. who had a commitment to our four principles of renewing democracy, facts and evidence-based policy, building an economy that works for all, and diversity as an asset. And we also looked at their academic uh, backgrounds. The, those 
new leaders that we identified. Right now, there's 20 of them sitting in Congress. They are some of the impre most impressive first and second term members of Congress who really want to do things differently. For instance, one of them is Dean Phillips. He's a second term member of Congress from Minnesota, who was instrumental in the bipartisan agreement on the most recent COVID relief package that was ultimately mm -hmm. then brought forward in the Senate. Abigail Spamberger uh, is another one of them. She's a former CIA agent uh, and really is building bridges in, a, in really important ways. We've also had a list of what we call democracy defenders, uh, those in uh, Congress and beyond who have stood up for our democracy in the political system. Uh, Mitt Romney falls into that bucket, who we think has really acted on principle many times. Uh, so we do think there is a core in the House and the Senate that are committed to these issues. And we have I think the groundwork to build on that in the next couple of years, but there's a big agenda ahead <laughs> in Congress yeah. and the, exactly the sequencing of bills, whether it's on COVID, whether it's on climate, whether it's on democracy reform is, is TBD. But uh, I think there is some hope for, for real progress. Uh, well, that's great. And I ask that in part because if I'm a top executive of a company and I'm being questioned, say, at my quarterly review with my investors, why am I taking a stand on these issues? One answer is, look, there are a lot of people in Congress that are on the same agenda that would help kind of uh, still some of the ruffled uh, feathers out there. But uh, maybe more specifically with the question behind that, if a top executive says to you, how do I explain to my shareholders that I'm taking time and maybe even some resources to think about sustaining democracy when that's a collective outcome, isn't that the province of politics and not the private sector? Sort of um, echoes of Milton Friedman here. So how would you explain it or how would you persuade a top executive to um, uh, think about that differently? It's a great question. I, I think there's a, a few answers to that. First, if we look at recent polling on expectations of business, uh, for instance, the Edelman Trust Barometer that just came out in the last two weeks showed that business was now the most trusted segment of society. Now, albeit trust in every segment is down, <laughs> but business is a relatively higher performer and people are really looking to chief executives for their leadership on a whole range of issues. And second, if we look historically, when democracies falter, it's when business hasn't engaged hmm. in, in reducing the threats. And we see around the world, I mean, that goes back, uh, certainly you could see that in Europe in the 1930s, uh, but even there's many recent examples. You know, when we were building this organization, I, I spoke with some Turkish executives who had become involved in trying to make sure the elections, recent now elections in Istanbul were legitimate. Yeah. And they said to us that Turkey was in season 16 in, in the end of democracy <laughs> series. And if the US was in season two, business leaders could prevent those future seasons. <laughs> and I, I do believe that that voice is, business and civil society voices are so critical when norms start 
to erode and trust in the system starts to erode. And in many ways, the last few months have been a case study in the importance of that, in the very vigorous response we've seen by yeah. companies to support election integrity and support uh, the response to the insurrection. So there's a moral case, but also there's certainly an economic case. If we're going to actually be a competitive nation uh, with others in the world. Our political system has to function. We have to have strong infrastructure. We have to be able to respond to COVID. We have to be able to respond to climate change. So I think there's a self-interest case and there's a kind of long-term health of our society case. Great, thanks. And Baton, over to you. All right, very good. Thank you, Mike. Um, Danielle, I'm gonna pick up on one of your principles and push a little bit, because I think, you know, as the expression goes, the devil is in the details. And the first principle is to protect democracy while renewing it. And the I, I'm sign me up. I'm right with you. But now you make me think of the recent discussion in the news about the filibuster. And I had thought that the filibuster was something that began at the inception of Congress and has been long lived. But in fact, I realized that that's actually a bit newer invention than I had anticipated. So there are those who argue keep the filibuster because it preserves democracy. And then there are those who argue, you know what, we need to rethink the filibuster in order to renew democracy. So, you know, when you make a, a principled statement, which, you know, I certainly agree with, how do you manage the, the nitty gritty, the details of that? I think it's a great, a great question. The way we've thought of this to date is, is two ways. One, in the last four years, we have seen much more attention at a state-by-state -state level to what I would say democracy, call democracy issues. So for instance, in 2018, you had the most ballot initiative ever initiatives ever on issues like making redistricting objective, ranked choice voting, opening up primaries, changing campaign finance, enfranchising felons. We've, we've seen a lot of activity as well as a lot of legislation at a state level in particular around expanding voting rights or restricting voting rights. <laughs> and so we've sought in this time to, uh, there's some organizations that have been really focused on just protection and others that are just focused on the innovations, like a ranked choice voting or otherwise. And I think, you know, we felt we can't forget the protecting part, but as business people, we want to see the innovation as well and not hold the, you know, the current system is static. We just, everything should just stay as it was because that was inherently better. I mean, democracy has been meant for innovation. American democracy was an innovation. So I think applying that to the, to the filibuster and the discussions that are happening right now in Washington, not only in the filibuster, but on a whole suite of democracy uh, legislation. There's a piece of legislation called For the People Act, which is looking at voting rights and campaign finance reform. There's legislation on DC statehood on the table. Um, without coming to a conclusion <laughs> on exactly where those should go and the decision that should be taken on the filibuster, those debates should be happening. And we as a country should be really thinking about, um, do we need an amendment to the Constitution on campaign finance reform? Do we need to reaffirm voting rights? Do we need to reconsider our processes in Congress so we can actually deliver legislation? I think that's really healthy. Um, and uh, there are reasoned debates on both sides. But I wouldn't hold that the way things have been uh, in the last 
decade are the way things should always be because they've actually, you know, it's not like the last decade or the decade before is exactly the same as the previous. Yeah. yeah I really appreciate your response because you're really underscoring the importance of having the conversation, not necessarily digging into a particular position or the other, but to have that, um, have that debate. So I might, I'm just curious because, you know, your principles are so, um, you know, to me in some ways they seem self-evident, but I don't know that they really are. I'm wondering how you as an organization ended up drilling down and deciding on the four that you decided, you know, to protect and renew democracy, facts and science matter, the economy work, should work for all, and diversity is an asset. So how did you come to those four? It's a great question. I think developing principles like these, I've seen multiple processes in that, in my career. One, it was something I mentioned earlier, the creation of the Sustainable Development Goals, which 192 countries signed on to. Uh, that was a lengthy process to develop a shared set of principles. Uh, ours was a more nimble entrepreneurial process <laughs> uh, in that as we started this group, I had 10 and co-founders uh, who joined me, uh, who happened to all be uh, women who'd graduated from Harvard Business School. We've obviously expanded <laughs> since then. We have hundreds of members from multiple business schools, including Wharton and others. <laughs> uh, but we really uh, you know, sat down and said, if we're going to start a political organization, many organizations define their reason for being to raise money or to support a issue. And we really wanted to support a agenda that was not partisan by definition, that was aspirational um, and could create a true north as the organization grew and the issues we would tackle and decisions we would make would become more complicated. Uh, so those principles have served us well in that regard. Uh, they may evolve in, in the future, but um, that's where we've started. Great reply. Mike, before I hand to you, let me remind everyone, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall with Mike Yuseem, and today our guest is Daniela Ballou Ayers, founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project. Mike, over to you. Daniela, we're getting close to the end. I have a final, call it a professional question, uh, question and then a more personal question. On a professional question, since you worked in the State Department on international assistance, and of course that's um, a very different arena from American democracy, they're related, but it's still it's different. To what extent uh, do you think it's important for companies to become involved in international development the same way you would ask them to become a involved in sustaining American democracy. So let me stop on that and I'll come back to the more personal question in a minute. Sure. You know, I always thought of international engagement, working on global issues as not just a domestic versus international view, but that there is a set of shared issues that we need to solve globally. Climate change is in some ways the obvious example of that. There is no, there are no borders to how we will solve that problem, but it certainly holds for many others, pandemics now being another. So 
I think for companies with a global footprint, being part of the solution to these challenges across their multiple locations and into interaction with uh, both nonprofit organizations and governments, I think is uh, not only a worthy thing to do, but uh, is a space where they can help create the kind of problem solving that is uh, needed for their businesses to sustain. So I think that's, that's really worthwhile. I would, um, uh, one thing we really worked to do in, uh, in the Obama administration was shift away from a view of seeing it as assistance in some ways, um, but really yeah. as shared global, global problems. And one thing that we really, I'd mentioned the sustainable development goals earlier that we'd worked on an innovation in that was that the U.S. was part of it. We were also trying to achieve those goals. We, if you measured, they, there were measurable target, there are measurable targets on each of those goals that the U.S. had not achieved in various areas. And uh, so I think that idea that it's no longer us telling others <laughs> what they need to achieve, but we're all working together to improve. And Danielle, staying on that for just a second more, I, I think I hear a theme. See if this sounds right. You'd like companies to step forward in ways they can have impact on the preservation, the, the sustaining of American democracy separately, but same point, to step forward in ways they can contribute to uh, preventing climate change, uh, responding to Ebola in West Africa, and so on. And thus is one of your lines of advice, I don't want to put words in your mouth, it's a genuine question, uh, to companies, do what you can do with who you are. So take the pharmaceutical companies, they've got a huge role to play, their money, we'd love it to be made available for the causes as well. But um, if they said, if uh, let's make it uh, Johnson & Johnson, much in the news today, what can we do to help international development? One answer is, well, help us out with uh, your cash, but maybe more importantly, help us out with your, your new vaccine. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think companies in their core business are deliver many of the goods and products and services that are needed to address these challenges. And so we not only want them to deliver those products well and to the communities that they need, that need them, but also be really, I think, innovative and thoughtful on the business models, right? So that you actually can reach a broader, broader segments of society. So I'd like a lot, I, I would suggest we want to see a lot of energy on creating those business models that work for broader population rather than seeing kind of a segmented CSR or assistant effort, yeah. which can have some value, but it's the, the big wins are in the core business model. And the second thing I would add to that is paying attention to at the same time the role that you're playing politically through government affairs or otherwise and yep. making sure that's not inconsistent with those other goals. So a final very thank you Annette a final very career question uh, for you and that is um, if somebody uh, let's say about the age of 20 is finishing up college and listening to this program and are thinking whoa I'd love to do what Daniela has been doing um, do I need to major in engineering do I have to go into uh, consulting or maybe do a startup? Uh, do I need to work in the State Department? So what career advice would you have for people who would like to be one day? Oh, well, you know, I, I think two things. Um, I always advise early on in your career, uh, 
to build skills that help you problem solve and operate in any environment. Uh, so I've really appreciated the skills that I built at Bain, that I built through uh, engineering and business school, they gave me some ways of thinking of problem solving uh, that were really valuable in many different contexts. Uh, and at the same time, I think the other thing I would advise is know what you care about and always find ways to engage on that, even if it's not your day job at the moment. And find like-minded people who are going to build on that. So, for instance, when I was in business school, you know, while I had been at Bain, I'd worked in South Africa in the late 90s. Uh, so it was just post-apartheid. And that experience made me really uh, know that the direction part of, I wanted to go was to work in this much more international space at the intersection of public and private. And uh, when I was at uh, Harvard, there was, it was as the global AIDS epidemic was really becoming visible. Uh, and I worked on that with academics that were at the leading edge of that with other students that were advocates and others. And those networks of people have continued for the next 20 years to be people who are working to solve problems in the world in, in many different ways. So I think that kind of networking, not for the sake of networking alone, but building a network of like-minded people, it will enable you to transition the core skills you build early into using them to drive the kind of change in the world that you want to see. Great. Thank you. And back to you. Thank you, Mike. Well, Daniela, we have just a few more minutes on leadership in action. And how about I'll ask a question or two. And then as is our custom, Mike, you and I and Jeff usually do an after action review, an AAR. And how about I'll invite you to join that review, after action review with Mike. But first, a follow up question from me, and I'm going to follow Mike's lead. I'm going to ask one that is professional and then ask a little bit more personal question. So on the professional question, we've talked about where you've been and where you are. I wanna ask you about where you're going. So how about, you know, what do you see now for the future of, you know, your organization, the Leadership Now Project? So I, I think in starting Leadership Now, from the beginning, we were clear that this was a, not a one or two or three year project. It was a generational project really. And uh, we have 20 years ahead of us of strengthening, innovating and rebuilding democracy. Every, you know, the next five, 10 years are particularly critical, I, I believe in rebuilding faith and participation and strength of our democracy. Uh, and, so, you know, I see our organization growing and uh, building that constituency of business people who are, who are ready to be in the game on strengthening our democracy, who are paying attention uh, and using their expertise and networks and resources to do so. Uh, so we can't stop now. <laughs> in some ways, we're just we're really just starting. All right, and this is a show on leadership in action, and certainly the title of your organization, Leadership Now, puts you squarely right on point, on topic. But I'd like to ask a little bit more personally, as founder and CEO, how would you describe your own leadership style? Well, that's a great question. You are both the leadership experts, so I'm going to have to ask you later for your own observations. But uh, 
Look, I, I think um, what I have found in galvanizing others to social impact, to address social impact challenges is I seek to provide kind of a genuine, passionate commitment to the issue, set some direction of how we can get there, and then really finding the partners and the teams that have a great skill set that they want to use, but don't yet know how to deploy it to solve the problem at hand. In some ways, that was what we sought to do at Dahlberg. You know, mm -hmm. we, we, we hired people who were coming from McKinsey and Bain and other firms and said, okay, let's really build an organization that's going to use some of those skills and uh, solve global problems. And in some ways, I see all of Leadership Now's membership as our talent base for problem solving. Uh, so hopefully building those networks for change is uh, is kind of the core of how I I aim to exhibit leadership. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. And how about that? We'll segue into a brief AAR here. We've got about two minutes. So Mike, uh, reflections on the conversation today. Well, to be very brief, I love the title of Daniela's organization, Leadership Now, which implies two things to me. <laughs> not next year, not next decade, now, number one. But number two, we've got to do it. So it's now and it's for us. And Anne, I'm thinking we've got our own work cut out for ourselves. We teach leadership at our school. And given what Daniela has said and what her cause stands for, I think we've got to think about our curriculum in ways that reflect on her agenda. Over to you. Oh, that's great, Mike. Well, uh, you've touched on a topic dear to my heart, and Daniela also spoke about it, about taking a more synthetic view of leadership and looking across divides, not only political divides, but uh, professional divides, educational divides. So I so appreciate that. And yes, I'm on board. Daniela, how about you? Uh, just a reflection you'd like everyone to hear as we as we close up shop here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think um, Mike said it well that uh, we all have work to do. <laughs> and I think in politics, there has been too much of an emphasis on finding the leader that's going to solve the problem <laughs> or who is creating the problem in either case. And I hope we're in a season now where we recognize that it's our collective problem to solve and it's a collective opportunity we have and we have to take that opportunity now and not later. Very good, Daniela. And with that, you have the last word. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall with Mike Yuseem. And thank you to Daniela Balu Ayers, founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project. Thank you and come back next week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 